Okay, welcome everyone. Good to see you tonight. We're going to be looking uh, tonight at um, when love speaks. Uh, one of the phrases of the words Jesus spoke from the cross, it is finished. And uh, so we'll be looking at the crucifixion tonight, the passion of Jesus and uh, exactly what happened to that man when he died on the cross. Let me give you a little bit of an overview of where we are right now. Um, we started uh, two weeks ago by looking at the wedding at Cana. The series is called Encountering the Lord, and we talk about when we encountering the Lord means that we come into a personal experience of the Lord that changes the way our lives are. Um, faith is not just something that's intellectual, it's also experiential. Uh, faith really is meant to be experiential. Uh, so it's not opposed to the intellectual, it just says that we have the intellect, we also are to have the experience in our life. Uh, so... That's what the Encounter of the Lord series is meant to do, to stir in our hearts the desire for an encounter with the Lord. And then last week we looked at the man that was paralyzed, and we saw Jesus as the God-man, fully human, fully divine, restoring this man completely, body and soul. Something the Lord said he has come to do. He's come to free men and women, heal them, and deliver them. It won't be completely in this life, but certainly signs of the Lord's presence, like healing and restoration of lives, point to the further sign of what he'll do uh, at the end of time when we're all promised a resurrected body but as one abbot told me once if you don't see bodies healed now how can you expect it to believe in a resurrected body <laughs> so healings now are incomplete but they point to the resurrection of the body that we'll all receive tonight we look at the crucifixion next week we'll look at the resurrection how the resurrection changes things for the most uh, momentous events in history is the, the risen Christ and how that changes everything. And in the last two weeks, we'll complete, uh, wrap it up by talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, finding real power in life will be the fifth week and the sixth week, you shall receive power. So we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is such a significant person in the life of the Christian, of the Catholic. Without the Holy Spirit, there really isn't much to speak about regarding the Christian life. He's kind of, if you would, the analogy limps, but it's kind of like the gasoline to your beautiful car. You know, no matter how wonderful your car is, and if it doesn't have gasoline in it, it doesn't go anyplace. The Holy Spirit is like that. And uh, so we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how we can experience more of the Holy Spirit in our life, because he makes all the Christian life come alive, every aspect of it for us. So tonight we're going to look at when love speaks, it is finished, and let's turn to the Lord in prayer. And uh, before we begin, in the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. So Father, we give you praise and give you thanks that we're joined here this evening with the angels and saints, though we cannot see them physically, Lord, we know by faith that the communion of saints join us in intercession and in prayer. We thank you, Father, that uh, tonight the church here on earth also is joined to the church in heaven as we gather to worship you, we come to listen to your word. We come mostly to reflect on the crucifixion of your son, the passion of your son, and what it, what it meant for him to go to the cross, what it meant, what happened to that man as he died on Calvary, and the eternal plan that you had purposed for us and for the whole world. Scripture tells us, Father, that you so loved us and so loved the whole world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever does not, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So we thank you, Father, for the gift of the saving love of your Son. Tonight, help us to 
grow in deeper appreciation, deeper awareness of what it cost that man to go to the cross for us. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'd like to begin, um, if you look at your notes, we're gonna, we have uh, actually two kind of different challenges with the notes tonight. So the first part of it, we'll be looking um, at what is the cross, the brutality of the cross. And secondly, talk about uh, the scripture that we'll be looking at will be John chapter 19. And then the third part of the evening, we'll be looking at some fill in the blanks has to do looking at what salvation is, exactly why we need salvation and different pictures of salvation found in the scriptures. Um, it'll give, I hope that'll give us a little bit under uh, understanding of the, the depth and the breadth of salvation because uh, you just can't capture it with one particular picture of it. And then we'll wrap it up by talking about the Holy Spirit and his role in salvation. So let's take a look at the uh, brutality of the cross. I'm not sure sometimes we always appreciate this because the cross or the crucifix is, is just so prevalent to us. I mean, it's, um, we have, you know, pictures all over the place. We have, uh, you know, we have jewelry, you know, we have, we have all kinds of symbols and signs that we created over the years to, to reflect the cross. Um, it's almost become benign in its nature, and hopefully we'll see tonight it's anything but benign. Uh, so let's take a look at your outline. This form of execution was reserved for non-Roman citizens and criminals of the state. The Greeks actually began, uh, kind of initiated crucifixion. They created it, but it was the Romans who took it over from the Greeks and kind of like, uh, you might say, put some polish on it. They really made it what it, we understand to be when it came to the time of Jesus. But it was only, it was so heinous a form of execution, it was so brutal a form of execution that it was only, it was reserved for non-Romans. So if you're a Roman citizen, you would not have to undergo crucifixion. Uh, it was designed for those that were considered to be political insurrectionists or criminals of the state. It was a, crucifixion was a political statement made by the government of Rome saying, if you mess with us, this is what's going to happen to you. So crucifixion was a public um, message sent to all of Rome's enemies, basically, both within and outside. Number two on your outline, this form of execution degraded the human person with flogging and torture. Now, the flogging and torture was usually enough to kill a person, um, depending upon their own physical stamina. So a lot of times people didn't make it to the wood of the cross. They just died in being flogged. Jesus, you know, of course was flogged some 39 times, and he made it through that. Um, and then, of course, as you know, ultimately at the cross. Um, the torture was both psychological as well as physical. Um, the abuse, the verbal, the mental abuse that would go on, physical abuse would also occur uh, through hitting and slapping and things like that. Um, the carrying of a wooden beam in public to the place of execution was a person being taken through the streets, usually, this was a public sign of degrading the person. Um, it was meant to humiliate the person. It was, uh, it was meant in some way to, to cause the mind of the person to become uh, degraded and belittled as they were going through the streets and people were watching, thinking, oh, that's a criminal. That's a criminal. So to die in crucifixion meant you were a criminal, basically. Then that would be your legacy if you died in crucifixion. The person was stripped, fixed alive to an already standing post with ropes and nails. Um, that part of it was pretty, uh, you know, painful, obviously. 
course, we, for our own sensibilities, we cover Jesus's body up on the cross, on the crucifix. He was not covered up. He was completely naked. The Romans understood the Hebrew mentality, and nakedness to a Hebrew was a great shame. Public nakedness, that is, was a great shame. Um, and so the Romans, of course, wanted to make crucifixion the psychological statement, so they would strip a person completely, so that Jesus hung from the cross without any clothes at all. Um, crucifixion was slow, it's number three, because no major organs were damaged. The Romans knew exactly how to do this well, of course. This would be slow, painful, and long, even days, a person could hang from the cross, actually. Um, the, uh, oftentimes, as we know, with, uh, to expedite the process, they would break the legs of a person so they couldn't lift themselves up to breathe, basically, if they wanted to speed up the process, that is. So oftentimes they would not speed up the process because they wanted to keep the message ringing in the eyes and the ears of people who walk by. This is what will happen if you mess with Rome. Number four, the public character of the crucifixion set a message to deter others who challenge Rome's power. And that was the issue. It was don't challenge our power, basically, because this is what will be happening. Letter B, Jesus underwent the brutality of the crucifixion to take on himself the sin of the human race. So, um, you know, the faith perspective of the cross or the crucifixion is that that this is the sacrifice of love that atones for sins. And this is what we'll be looking at tonight a little bit more closely. The guiltless one took on our guilt. The sinless one took on our sin. That's important. You know, Jesus went to the cross without any guilt, without any sin. And he became, as one of our prefaces to our liturgy says, he, he took upon himself our guilt, yet he was without guilt. Now, a person, as you probably know already, died usually by uh, asphyxiation, as, as got to a point, or a heart attack, sometimes a combination of both, where their lungs begin to fill up with fluid, uh, and they would try to kind of lift themselves up with their legs. Ultimately, if you're hanging for several hours and you're trying, after having been through all of this other part, the flogging and the brutality, the mental and verbal abuse and physical abuse, it was difficult after a while to lift yourself up. So you would just eventually just drown in your own um, fluid, basically. And usually a heart attack would accompany that if it hadn't already. That's most likely how Jesus died. So when they pierced his side, blood and water flowed. So physically, uh, blood and water flowed from his side because his lungs were filling up with that. You know, um, most likely he would have died of a heart attack, though. In the Catechism, it says, In suffering and the death of his humanity, Jesus' humanity, became the free and perfect instrument of his divine love, which desires the salvation of men. Indeed, out of love for his Father and for men, whom the Father wants to save, Jesus freely accepted his passion and death. And this is what Jesus said in John's Gospel. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It's important to understand uh, the Catholic understanding of, I would say probably Christian in general, understands the crucifixion as something that Jesus freely did. He freely underwent this. Um, a lot of times we sometimes people will say Jesus was a misunderstood person, politically misunderstood, a good, a good person, a prophet, but just misunderstood by his times and was put to death. Almost as if this wasn't part of God's plan. The Catholic vision, as we just saw, and the Christian vision in general, is that this was part of God's plan. It, the Lord used political means, military means. He used all those means 
But at the heart of it all was a plan being we wove into existence that in which Jesus says here freely accepted this out of divine love for the salvation of men. So out of love for his father and for men, Jesus underwent this and freely chose it. So um, if you notice, I, in Eucharistic prayer 2, um, it says that Jesus freely, willing, willingly, actually it, was, it used to be freely to change the words to willingly accepted his passion. So it's a really important word. Jesus, with his own freedom of choice, underwent this. He didn't have to, okay, as the Garden of Gethsemane indicated. All right, so let's go in your gospel. Now, we're going to be looking at the scripture now. So let's go in the Bible to John chapter 19. And we're going to divide this up into sections, actually, verses 25 through 27, and then 28 through 30, actually, and then 31 through 37. So let's look at 20, verses 25 through 27 first. This is uh, John's depiction of the crucifixion. Each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a, we call narrative of the crucifixion, which is a description of the events. John, however, takes the events that took place and, and is unique in it in compared to the other Gospels and weaves uh, what would be considered a, a broader understanding of what the crucifixion means. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are describing events. Here's what happened. Here's what took place. And that's important. But John says, here's what took place, but here's what's happening in a broader vision. So this is what we're looking at tonight. Verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magd of Magdalene. Remember, the only other time that Mary appears in John's Gospel is in the wedding of Cana. And she wasn't even called Mary. She's called the mother of the Lord or the mother of Jesus. Okay. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Okay. So these people, Mary, the mother of Jesus, obviously, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary of Magdala, and the beloved disciple, who, as you can see, is unnamed here, but is believed to be the one who's the author of John's gospel. They're witnesses to the crucifixion. It's the first thing. Now, a witness is somebody who experiences firsthand what is taking place, so much so that it impacts and changes a person's life. And you can then stand on your own two feet and say, this is what happened to me when I experienced this, or this is what happened to me as a witness to this. And so what John's gospel is saying is, here's what happened to me when I encountered this man as he hung from the cross. So I think when you when read it from that perspective, we, have, we catch what John is trying to say for each of us. That is, we're called personally to encounter the Lord so we can be witnesses to him. Okay, so um, Mary, let's take a look at, actually it's the mother of Jesus. It doesn't even name Mary, but it's the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Lord. Jesus assigns to her a kind of a new role in verses uh, 26 and 27. Um, if you remember back in uh, John chapter 2, she was called woman. 
And that term sounds a little bit like a put-off, but actually it's a reference to and a term describing a new role that Mary would have. So she becomes a disciple of her son in the wedding at Cana. Now Jesus is going to change her role to become the mother of the church. So, and John's gospel brings it out. So Mary, the mother of the Lord, is beneath the cross. And, and, and again, the gospel says here, uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Woman is a, is a, a word that means a new relationship now you have, Mary. A new relationship to my people. John, the disciple here, actually the, I'm saying John's the beloved disciple, is symbolizing the church. So what Jesus is doing is establishing a new relationship between Mary and his people. She's the mother of her people. So she went from disciple of her son to now being mother of her people, his people as well. So woman, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother, meaning embrace your mother. The word for behold is an interesting word. It appears a lot in John's gospel. It, it's a word of revelation. It's a word of unveiling something new, something, something that breaks into the hearts and lives of people that indicates a new relationship has been established. So when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking, this is John chapter 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, meaning that this man, Jesus, who's my cousin, is not just simply my cousin, you know, but he, behold, meaning that there's a new relationship being established now. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here we see, behold, your mother. So Mary is being named by Jesus to be the mother of the church. As a mother, of course, she cares for, intercedes, protects, you know, her children. So, and that's exactly what... John and Jesus is indicating that he wants to see take place here. So a new relationship is occurring. And the beloved, a new relationship to, number each of us have a spiritual mother, and that's Mary. Okay. Jesus also said in John chapter 12, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. So here we see in this uh, part of the gospel here, we see where Jesus is fulfilling his words where the church is gathering, the church in the form of his mother and the beloved disciple, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdala. The church is gathering to witness to the saving love at the cross. So Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. When I'm lifting up, I will draw all to myself. And so when we look at the sacraments of the church, for example, all the sacraments, all seven of them, they all get their power from the cross. From the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So when I baptize a baby or um, you know, pour water, the power of that water to bring new life comes from the cross and resurrection. That's the only place it comes from. You know, when we, uh, the priest bless bread and wine and, and becomes the body and blood of Christ, it comes from the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in other words, everything flows from the cross of Jesus in terms of imbuing it with power in terms of the sacraments. All right. So let's look at verses, uh, so that's verses 26 and 27. And let's take a look at, again, Mary again for just a moment, the mother of Jesus. If you remember in the wedding at Cana, she serves a larger role by becoming a disciple. She says, do what he says now. 
She becomes the mother of the church, and she becomes the new Eve. Okay, the first Eve was the mother of the living. Uh, uh, you know, understandable. The second Eve, which is Mary, means she's the mother of those that are reborn in baptism by the work of the Holy Spirit. So she becomes, at this point, what Jesus is saying, you're the mother of those that will be reborn through baptism. And where does baptism get its power? From the cross and the resurrection. Okay, let's move on to verses 28 through 30. After this, aware that everything was now finished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine. So they put a sponge soaked in wine on a spring of hyssop, put it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had taken the wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the spirit. Okay, so, um, so basically here... Uh, in this part, when Jesus, when John says it's finished, it, he does not saying the crucifixion is finished. He's saying that God's, the Father's eternal plan of salvation for His people is completed in the perfect act of obedience and love of His Son. So, um, it's when Jesus says, "I thirst," then the thirsting obviously on one level is something naturally He would thirst because you've gone through all this you'd be have a natural thirst but it's much more john's gospel is saying at this point what he's thirsting for is now faith in the hearts of those that will look upon him as he hangs from the cross so so and on, this, on this day there were people that looked at him on the cross and some had faith and others mocked him all in the same geographical location all within the same time period. Some mocked him, and some put faith in him. So here we see, then, I thirst. He's thirsting for our faith. He's thirsting for our commitment to him. He's thirsting for the surrender of our hearts to his love. That's what he's thirsting for. So they took the, the hyssop. Now, hyssop was something that they used in the Old Testament a lot. They would take the blood of, um, and actually literally bathe a lamb in the blood that was spilt. Uh, it usually came from sacrifice, and that was seen as atonement of sins. So what that's referring to here, John puts that, uh, specifically puts that there, up to his mouth, the spring of, the spring of hyssop, because Jesus becomes the lamb whose blood atones for our sins. So then it's finished, he says, meaning that I have fulfilled my Father's eternal plan to save the human race. Now, in John's gospel, bowing his head and hand over his spirit is an anticipation of Pentecost. Uh, it's, uh, in other words, it's the crucifixion of Jesus, it's the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost completes the work of salvation. That's what brings it to a completion. So when John has in here, he bows his head and hands over his spirit, or some versions say breathe his spirit, then it's saying it's anticipation that Pentecost will be the, the work of God that will complete the work of salvation. So John anticipates that day of Pentecost. Okay, so Jesus then, when he says it's finished, says that he 
perfectly fulfills the, his, the plan of his father for salvation, he lays down his life in love for his disciples to the very end. So he accomplishes what his father wanted him to accomplish perfectly without straying from it. So in this way, then, Jesus is revealing the father's heart of love for every single person that exists, has ever existed, will ever exist, and exists now. This is the depth of the Father's love for every single human being. One last thing about thirsting. If you remember the woman at the well, uh, so we have not studied it here. Actually, we will study it. I talk about the Holy Spirit. But um, remember the woman who had the kind of the, the baggage in her life with all those men and so on, and she's really broken, and she comes to the well. And remember, Jesus says, I have something to give you to drink. And you know, and of course she says, well, you know, are you so great? You can do, dig into this well. Our father Jacob was there first, you know. And of course, she's speaking of physical water, and Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Jesus said, I want to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit that will fulfill all the promises that my father has made to his people, promises to, to recreate your life. That's why the Holy Spirit will be talking about, and we'll have two sessions on that, because it's so important, because Jesus is giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people that is the fruit of his passionate love for us on the cross and in the resurrection. So, okay, let's go now to verses 31 through 37. Now, since it was preparation day, in order that the bodies might not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, uh, for the Sabbath day of that week was a solemn one. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and they'd be taken down. Now, normally, the Romans would let the bodies stay up there, and people would linger until they died. But, but the Jews were sensitive to Jesus in that. Um, I don't think they cared too much about the thieves on either side. Of course, in John's Gospel, the thieves don't even appear, but the other accounts, they do. So, but they were concerned about their fulfilling their law for the Sabbath. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with Jesus. Again, breaking the legs uh, expedience causes death to really cause more rapidly. And verse 33, when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side and immediately blood and water flowed out. Okay, so to stop there for just a minute. Um, in the Old Testament, the lamb that was used for sacrifice was, was prohibited from being, have its legs broken. So in other words, in order to have a lamb that was unblemished, you couldn't break its legs at all. So here is Jesus fulfilling that. John wants us to see that clearly. Jesus is fulfilling that he's now the Paschal lamb. He's the, the lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament, bring deliverance to his people, to Israel, is now... Jesus is the Paschal Lamb who brings a deliverance from the slavery to sin. So his legs can't be broken in order for him to fulfill that prophecy. Okay, so his side then, blood and water that flows from his side, uh, the Catholic Church has particularly understood this as the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. Water. Water is the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the source of new life for baptism. So in baptism, when a person is being brought into the church and being baptized, whether babies or an adult, you know, they are um, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how they become a new creation. 
the blood referring to the Eucharist, which is the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember, I said that the waters of baptism get their power from the sacrifice of Jesus. So John is saying, look, when he was pierced, then blood and water flowed from his side. Jesus' death is the source of spiritual life for all those in darkness. Now, the prophets spoke about this. Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, all prophesied that the Lord would one day give life-giving water as his mercy that would regenerate the lives of men and women who come to him in faith. That life-giving water is the Holy Spirit. Where is that Holy Spirit coming from? It comes from the passionate death of Jesus on the cross. That the prophets, Ezekiel, if we had time, we would look more into those prophecies. But Joel and Zechariah all said that we're looking for that day when it just won't be the special people that get the Holy Spirit. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will receive the Holy Spirit. And all of them can have a new power, a new presence of God in their life. And they can know God in a way that's personal and intimate in their life. Just like the prophets do. You know, just like Moses did. Just like Abraham did. And so Jesus' blood and water flows from his side, then, is the fulfilling of that prophecy. Okay, verse 35. An eyewitness has testified, and his testimony is true. He knows that he's speaking the truth, so that you may also come to believe. For this happened so that the scripture passage might be fulfilled. Verse 37. Not a bone of it will be broken. And again, another passage says... They will look upon him and whom they have pierced. That um, latter uh, prophecy, verse 37, is taken from Zechariah in the Old Testament. So who is the eyewitness here? Who is the eyewitness that has testified? Who is the eyewitness that says, hey, this is true? Um, You know, that, and he says he's speaking the truth. That's the author of the fourth gospel, the beloved disciple. He's the eyewitness. Eyewitness doesn't mean that I was I was there and I witnessed it all happen. So I could, if I had a, if I had my iPhone that takes some pictures of it, you know, it means that it has changed my life and changed my eternal destiny. That what took place there has impacted and changed me entirely. I'm not the same any longer. I'm a different person because of what happened there. That's what he means by eyewitness. And here's the thing: is that you and I don't have to be physically standing underneath the cross to be eyewitnesses. But through the Holy Spirit and the encounter with the risen Christ, we can become eyewitnesses. Now, eyewitnesses here means that, and we'll see this a little bit later on with the role of the Holy Spirit. Eyewitnesses means that we have a conviction, assurance that what took place took place as God's eternal plan of salvation for my life and for the life of the whole world. This is the stuff that martyrs are made of. But this is the stuff that you and I are called to have the same kind of conviction, the same kind of assurance, the same kind of confidence as they do. Okay, so let's now, if you go, maybe you go to your outlines now, and uh, I want to break this open a little bit more, giving the reasons behind this, behind self, but behind what took place at the cross. So here we want to do some fill in the blanks. Okay, this is number three on your outline. So the problem is man's need for salvation. That's the, that's the backdrop to all this, our need, the human race's need for salvation. So first is we underestimate our need for a savior because we underestimate who God is. 
God is holy. God is holy. Holy means separated from, other than. That doesn't put anybody down. That just means that's the nature of what God is. And underneath that, God cannot tolerate evil because God is righteous and just. So let me give you an example. You take a fish, if you take a fish out of water, it's going to flop around for a while, right? Because it's not its natural habitat. It's not, what it's, it's not living in the habitat or the culture it was created to live. It's living something foreign than what it was meant to live. And if you leave it on the table long enough, it's going to die. But if you take it and put it back into the water, it's back in its natural habitat. You and I were created to be holy without sin. We weren't made for sin. Sin wasn't part of our psychological, physical, mental, spiritual structure. God never intended his creation to sin. He never intended his creation to be alienated from him and be separated from him. He just never intended that. So that means the way he made us then, he didn't make us for sin. We're the fish out of the water when we sin. We just flop around, right? And if we stay that way long enough, we're cut off from our life source, which is the water, and we die. So, and the reason for that is because God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, and he made us in his image and likeness. He didn't make us for sin. So that's our problem is that we're a fish out of water. Let's look at, uh, turn over, if you would. The nature of man, our nature, is, our nature is, we are, sin- we are sinful. Our first parents chose to come out of the water, to be the fish out of the water. Okay? They chose to flop around. And that nature that they have has been, we've all inherited that. That's what we mean by original sin. Our choice is we sin. So there's, there's a part of us that lives, as it were, wanting to be the fish out of the water. Okay. And our condition, then, is we're lost. What's lost mean here? It means a life separated from Christ that creates an, that creates an openness in our hearts and lives for the workings of the evil one. We're victimized by principalities and powers working through like the world structures of fashion, entertainment, sometimes economics, different false beliefs, and destructive behavior. All this is what we mean by loss, that we're cut off. Our allegiance is to the world, that is, to the, to the surface of my table. Remember, we're supposed to be in the water as the fish, and now on the surface of the table. Our allegiance is to the surface of the table rather than to the water. And there grows in us an animosity towards God. This is all we mean by original sin. Look at the next line here. Three central truths about salvation. This is from the Catechism of the Church. From the first moment of his incarnation, the Son embraces the Father's plan of divine salvation in his redemptive mission. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Why? Because we were fish out of water. 
So from the very moment of incarnation, it was the Son who embraced the Father's plan to redeem us. That could only come through the cross. So fill in the blanks again, number one. The initial beginnings of salvation is not by works, not by trying to be good, but by grace. I say initial, I, 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 I italicize, because the beginnings are initiated by God. He starts it. He sends his son. Jesus accepts that. In other words, the fish out of the water has no power to get himself back in the water. So with original sin, we had no power to put ourselves back into grace. just wasn't there. So we need someone to intervene. Um, I don't know if I shared this with you guys or not, but it's I, when I was 14 years of age, I, we were my family, family were at Ocean City, and uh, typically I pushed the envelope sometimes, so I kind of weighed it way out there in the ocean, you know, and um, you know, you know how the undertow is, right, with the weight ocean, and of course, at 14, I guess you don't think you're you're invincible, basically, you know, you're just like Superman and all that. So, you know, and then, but at one point, I could feel the undertow beginning to pull me out. And I tried, like the darnest, to get out of that. And the harder I tried, the, <laughs> the more it, I dug in and felt like I was going out and under. Okay. And to the point where I was panicking, you know, if you ever had that feeling, you panic, and then you feel like you're just, you're just like, I don't know what to do. I, I feel lost, you know. I don't know who it was, but somebody grabbed me by the arm and yanked me out of that situation. And brought me away from the undertow. There was nothing I could do for myself. I was stuck. And I was being pulled by something that I didn't have a whole lot of control over. My choice got me there. But once my choice got me there, something else took over. And then somebody had to come and literally rescue me and pull me out from that situation. This is salvation. The word salvation in the scripture is a very broad, encompassing word. It means rescue, it means, it means deliver, it means heal, it means to forgive, and so on. Okay, so the initial beginnings of salvation is not by works, but by grace. So when I was initially pulled out of that undertow, somebody had to come and literally do that for me. That's grace. But I had to do the rest. I had to walk back to the shore, right? <laughs> I had to come up with some common sense not to do that again, right? Okay. So, so in other words, initially, God works in our life through grace, but then I need to cooperate with that grace. We call that conversion. That cooperation comes through living a life of holiness, prayer, uh, works of mercy, good deeds, and so on and so on. But my good deeds don't save me. It's the initial work of grace that's, that saves me. My cooperation with the Lord, then, is even inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So my good deeds are, should I think, hey, look at me, I do good deeds, you know? No, no, it's the Holy Spirit inspires me to do the good deeds. <laughs> if it wasn't the Holy Spirit working in me through grace, I would be able to do those good deeds. So I want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, for sure. But it's Him inspiring me. It's all grace. And we ought to know that as Catholics, because our whole sacramental system is built on grace. <laughs> All the sacraments are about grace, freely given to transform and heal our wounded nature. Okay. Next, number two, salvation is not initiated by us, but by God. 
This was his plan. And of course, the sending of his son is his is his plan and his choice and his son's choice to cooperate with that. And lastly, number three, salvation is not an afterthought with God. It is his eternal plan. So when I was in the ocean, it was good news to me if somebody came along and yanked me out of there, right? If a fish is flopping on your desk out of water, it's good news. Did you pick for the fish? Did you pick the fish up and put it back in the water? It's good news. Well, here's good news for us is that God's eternal plan was to send his son to rescue me and save me from a situation I couldn't change, which is the power of my nature was opposed to him because of original sin. The only way God could change that would be through a sacrifice of his son and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it changes for me. Okay, let's look at some descriptions of salvation. Now, again, the scriptures are full of different descriptions because one doesn't encompass it all. So I'm going to um, we have some words here that we fill in the blank, and I can explain what those words mean. So the first is forgiveness. Uh, Paul said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So forgiveness means he took my guilt. And the word for forgiveness means, uh, in the Greek, it means to send away. It's a release from imprisonment or bondage. It cancels all debt and judgment. That's what the word forgiveness means. So if we go to the sacrament of reconciliation and we confess our sins, the priest gives absolution through the ministry of the church, then what we're saying is forgiveness means that all judgment has been canceled. All debt has been canceled. You've been released from any imprisonment or bondage to sin. That your sins have been sent away. That's what forgiveness means. Now, the sacrament of reconciliation is the fullness of that gift of forgiveness. Of course, you can, you and I can just go before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. And so on. But the sacrament brings out the fullness of that character of the Lord sending away, releasing us from any imprisonment to sin. Imprisonment meaning the consequences of that and affecting our life. So, number two is justification. Justification implies Jesus makes peace with God possible. What, what that means is that he uh, were acquitted of our sins, were pronounced righteous before him. But justification means even more. It means I am, I am being inwardly transformed by his grace. That justification means that he's making me holy before his father. One of the ways he justifies us is by bringing us into the family of God baptism. So the sacrament of baptism is a sacrament of justification. Number three is adoption. Jesus makes me part of God's family. Now, um, if we had more time, we go into this a little bit more deeply, but in the New Testament, the word adoption, it's a word taken from actually the secular day of the Greek society, the Roman society, actually. And there, if... Um, if a master wanted to set his slave free, for example... He would take him down to the place where they bid on slaves, and the master would outbid everybody to buy back his slave. And then he would give his slave uh, papers that would make him part of the family. So in other words, you get everything that the regular, naturally born sons and daughters get. Okay, particularly sons. Okay, so that slave was given equal status. And if you're a Roman citizen that was adopted, for example, you became a Roman citizen, you go anywhere in the world as a Roman citizen and be protected by Rome. So, in other words, if you were a slave and were adopted, then you had a status that would be equal to 
uh, any Roman citizen in that society. So what Paul did, and took that phrase adoption, and said we become part of God's family, we have been given the gift of his Holy Spirit. I like to say we've been given God's DNA. Okay, All of us here have a DNA, right? And we, don't, we always say it with our children, right? You know, we say, gee, that, that, that daughter of yours, that looks just like you, or it looks like your father, you know, your husband or whatever. You know? Well, that's because of DNA, right? Well, here we have the Holy Spirit who is God's DNA given to us. So in other words, we share in his life, the life of Christ, the life of the Father. We share in it. Okay, and of course, as you know, DNA goes through our entire system, right? So God's life goes through our, so we share in God's life goes through our entire system. All right, next, number four, reconciliation. Jesus purchased my salvation with his blood. Reconciliation means to change, to exchange. It means to reestablish or restore a relationship. So, um, so reconciliation implies that two people were estranged and now they, their relationship has been restored. So the same thing here, that sin estranged us from God, but through the death and blood of Jesus on the cross, our relationship with God has been restored. The exchange here was that he took on our guilt and our sin okay, in order to restore that relationship. Number five, satisfaction. Jesus gave back to God all I should have given. Um, the Catechism says this, in particular, Jesus' redemptive death fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. But what do you mean by satisfaction? St. Thomas Aquinas, I think, had the best definition of this. Satisfaction, he said, was this. It's that when, first of all, God the Father lost something he esteemed greatly. He esteemed our love, trust, obedience, faithfulness, loyalty to him. That's what he esteemed. He, that's why he created us, you know, for all that. And he lost that. Jesus gives back to the Father all the love, all the trust, all the obedience, all the loyalty that you and I should have given but didn't. But he gave it back in a way that far surpasses what you or I, in our perfect state, could have ever given the Father. And so the Father is satisfied, which means that, that Jesus gave him back something that was far greater than what he lost. Now, here's the part of that. Jesus did that for you and for me. He did that on behalf of every single one of us. So it's like Jesus went to the Father and said, I'm giving you back, Father, everything that should have been given to you, but I'm giving it in a way that would have been, even if they were perfect, I would give it back to you in a way that far surpasses their perfection. And I'm doing it for every, in the name of every single person that's ever created. That's what Jesus did for us. Okay, number six, redemption. Jesus sends my sins away from me. Again, from the Catechism of the Church, it says, by sending his own son in the form of a slave, in the form of a fallen humanity, on the account of, a sin, of sin, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't sin, obviously, but it's saying that he took on our sin. He became like us in every way but sin, and he suffered for our sins. So 
So the word redemption means a release that's secured by a ransom. It means deliverance. It means setting free. Oftentimes, um, uh, like uh, a nation that would conquer another nation and bring the prisoners back, the conquering prisoners would be released. That's called redemption. In other words, they're released with their freedom. Okay, so these descriptions of salvation are kind of like different descriptions. And again, no one encompasses what the crucifixion was about. Uh, but together, they kind of give us a picture. But at the heart of it, I think you can see the Father's love for us and Jesus' love for us and the cost that he was willing to pay for our salvation. So any one of these words will capture the essence of that. That is that it was love that drove him to the earth and to take on the form of our humanity and to be rejected by his own creation. So uh, one of the, I was at a priest conference years ago and they said that a mystic um, who's obviously been tested in terms of quality of life and so on as being having legitimate vision said that in heaven there will be a place in heaven where we'll do nothing but gaze on the passion of Jesus Christ because it will take an eternity just to plummet the depths of Jesus' love for us. Can't wait to see that. So. <laughs> Number five on your outline here. We talk about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, just a little bit here. Uh, again, it's not intended to be uh, exhaustive. Um, and if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 16. I thought it was important to kind of conclude this about salvation, about saying what the Holy Spirit wants to do with this information that we're hearing. What, like, what is he up to? What's he want to accomplish within us? So John chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. Again, this is the Last Supper. So Jesus is, does a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel in the Last Supper. So verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus says. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Counselor will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, let's take a look at what that means. We've got your outlines here. Three key works of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. What he wants to do with the world as well, but first beginning with us. The first is he wants to convince the world and convince us of sin in our life. In other words, he wants to convict us of sin so that we'll turn away from it. Again, because sin is incompatible with the way he made us. So every time that we sin, it's like we are participating in something that we weren't made for. You know, it's like trying to put your foot in uh, into a shoe that your foot wasn't made for. You know, uh, it just won't go, it just won't fit. You know, have, you, have you ever tried on shoes and you say, well, I think this may fit. And then you walk around with it and you say, uh, just something doesn't feel right. That's what sin is. Something just doesn't feel right. So when we sin, we just know this is something's not right here. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if the whole world took that conviction, they would become kingdom. <laughs> they would repent and become kingdom. But we as believers, we have taken that conviction. We've, you know, 
We've understood that we needed to turn away from our sins. Okay. Next, number two is righteousness, because I go to the Father. What righteousness means is that the plan of God to save the world rests in Jesus, and that his coming was not arbitrary, but was a definitive plan to save the human race. That what happened to him at the cross and resurrection was not arbitrary. It was a definitive plan and work to save us. Righteousness means that the Holy Spirit wants to convince us, convict us of that. He wants to bring us a confidence and an assurance of that, that that Jesus is life and what happened to him was not arbitrary, but was a definitive plan to save the human race and is the definitive plan to save the human race. Now, for us to grow convinced of that and, and have assurance of that is a work the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. He wants to bring about that conviction. We'll talk more about that when we get into about the Holy Spirit. Number three is condemnation, because the ruler of this world is judged. The evil one um, has been judged, meaning that his power has been broken over, over the human race, because love triumphs over death. Love is more powerful than death. So, letter of the Hebrews, chapter 2, get some time to read that, says that, that the evil one holds the world in fear because of the power of death. Jesus came and broke the power of death. In other words, death is not the last word we've spoken over our life. Not spiritual death, not physical death. So here's the point of talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, is that he wants to bring to you and me an awareness of what God has done to save us, a conviction, an assurance that God is committed to our salvation. God has made a commitment to save us. He wants us to have confidence in that and grow in understanding of that. Why is that important? It's because when we have confidence in that and grow in conviction, then our lives change. We want to become holy. We want to grow in works of righteousness. We want to pray. We want to find out more of what God has done for us uh, and grow in that living knowledge of salvation. Okay, again, more of that when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, lastly, let's wrap it up here. What's our response? Now, you heard about all this, but um, we need the human race, and you and I need to make a response to, to the Father. That, that it's not just good enough to say, the Father has mercy, the Father sent his Son for every single human being that ever existed or will ever exist, you know, and he died for them to save them, is that you and I need then to respond to him. Um, because without a response, the work of salvation does not take place in our hearts, and our life doesn't change our lives. So let's take a look at some of the, uh, the nature of the response. Repentance. I acknowledge my need for this work of the Lord in my life. Like, I, know, I acknowledge that I need what, what he has come to do. I, and repentance means much more than just simply listing my sins. <laughs> That's helpful enough, but it's more than that. It means that that I need to do an about-face with my life, and I need the work of the Lord in my life. I need what he's done through the cross and resurrection at work to change me. Number two is acceptance of this plan by commitment to the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, in our baptism, believe it or not, we, our parents or godparents have said all this for us, okay? They also, you know, uh, even if their level of faith was limited, uh, the church was there, you know, 
And the Lord stands behind his church, and so he's taking all that seriously. So much so that the Augustine said, St. Augustine said that in baptism, we're given a marvelous gift of rebirth, he says. But if we grow up and don't conform our lives to it, it profits us nothing, he said. So, so acceptance means I accept this plan of God through his son, Jesus. That I am in need of a savior. I am in need of him as Lord. Okay, and acceptance, if we hadn't been baptized, acceptance will lead to like baptism. Okay. And lastly, surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit to transform my life. Okay, well, again, we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit in the weeks ahead. Okay, so when love speaks, it is finished. You can see what the plan of salvation is for us and how important it is for us to make that plan, a response to that plan. So one uh, aspect of our life that we can make the, the response to is every time we go to communion and receive the Lord in the Eucharist, we can make a response to the Lord there because that's the sacrifice of salvation at the Eucharistic table. There's the saving work of the Lord at work in our lives. He's giving himself to us. As we approach the table of sacrifice, we can say, Lord, I accept what you've done for me and I accept you as my Savior, I accept you as my Lord. And that, that little prayer of acceptance will go a long way in our lives. Because acceptance means I'm opening myself up to you, Lord, to do what you further want to do in my life. Okay. Each table should have an, another sheet of paper called When Love Speaks It Is Finished. It has questions for reflection and discussion. Okay. So what I'd like to do tonight is um, I'm going to start here with um, Joanne's table again. Just... Uh, Kind of like speak out like the numbers one two three four five so join you be number one one okay gia you're two okay <laughs> yes three uh stefan stefan your number four okay andy okay uh t tom no one it's <laughs> only five questions okay back table dick Dick number two, okay. Lynn and Steve number three. No, we'll go with those two. Okay, we we'll go with those two. Okay, uh, Rob number three, and uh, Bob and Carol number four. Okay, great. Let's take about twenty minutes to go through just your question one. Okay, thanks. <laughs> it's only one copy per table.